Hello, and welcome to What Our Point Weekly, where we bring together a variety of perspectives to discuss the biggest stories of the week and decide what our point, or if in fact there are no point at all. Please, if you like what you hear, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at What Our Point. Today it is Monday, July 27th, and I have um, Dr. Benjamin Sally. Hello. And we also have um, Donald Rumsfeld protege Nicholas Rodman. <laughs> I don't think that's accurate, but hello. So, the recurring story from last week, just amplifying, are the protests in the Pacific Northwest. Portland is the big hotspot right now. Um, it's kind of wild. There is, um, there's like a barricaded, the federal courthouse is barricaded up, and I think last night there were 5,000 protesters or 4,000 protesters. And um, yeah, there, there's also been a bunch of lawsuits filed back and forth about if, if, if the federal agents are allowed to be there or not. Uh, more information's emerging about who they are. Uh, I was reading that it's kind of crazy. There's like an entire U.S. Marshals headquarters set up in this building and it's it's going on now for i think close to 50 days that they've been um this has been a focal point of these protests and then also we have nick who is in seattle right now but protests there seem to be also amplifying to some degree there was a injunction placed last week about um if the federal officers could actually be in the state at all but they can and i know that there's now um there's a bunch of lawsuits. There's a Department of Justice Inspector General investigation. It just seems like we are one step further down on this road to um, internal chaos. And I, I find one of the most interesting parts of all of this to be that as the pandemic unfolded, Donald Trump tried to put all of the, as a, you know, a traditional conservative, you say that the the states, each state should have its own authority to deal with things directly. And now you have a situation where the states are asking Donald Trump not to intervene and he's sending these federal agents. So I guess I want to start there. Nick, what are your thoughts on sort of the relationship between the state and the federal government when it comes to your, the state where you now reside? Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I'm, I, I haven't, following some of the stuff going on in Portland a little bit. Uh, and in, in, in Seattle, it seems to be located just in the same neighborhood as where the, the Chaz was, the Capitol Hill, uh, South Lake Union area of downtown. Um, th- so the protests seemingly are just kind of fairly isolated in one neighborhood. Uh, as for the, the thought of the relationship between the state governments and the federal government, I, I'm a huge proponent of federalism. I think it works. Um, you know, obviously... The federal government does have a right to protect federal property, but I don't, you know, I think that optically it does look bad if you have federal agents on the ground arresting people, uh, if, the, if the local and state governments are not requesting that assistance. I think that's kind of something that really, you know, federalism goes, goes both ways. It, it, it um, you know, a lot of times that's kind of a conservative argument is states' rights and limited government and smaller government and, and leave it up to local agencies to, to do certain things. And I think that that should apply in this case too. So do you, from your perspective, do you think that 
adding more agents sort of amplifies the scenario or it's called for in this situation because of how unruly it's become? Do you think it's an effective strategy? No, I, I don't. I, I would tailor any federal response to the needs of the local law enforcement agency. So if you're having civil unrest, um, presumably if federal government assistance is requested, you send people that are that know how to deal with civil unrest. You know, if you deploy the National Guard, you deploy military police, you deploy specifically trained people to assist in civil unrest or, uh, you know, rioting or whatever. Uh, you know, I'm not not necessarily sympathetic to the destruction of federal property. I, I don't don't encourage that. But I, I think really you have to tailor the response to what's actually happening on the ground and not not use it for political grandstanding or anything like that. Well, I do think that what's interesting about this ex specific um, example is that there doesn't seem to be as clear of um, demands. It's not. It hasn't seemed like in other areas of protest where there's a clear set of demands. This seems to be more of system-wide structural reform that's being asked of, and the attention is very on the opposite end. The attention is is in Portland is focused on this one location. So I, I don't know. It seems like this is a the type of this is a tinderbox kind of situation where the the higher the tension becomes because there's no real clear way to end it and there is a physical space where something, you know, a bad decision could be made. I don't know. This seems to be uh, more dangerous than other situations. Yeah, and it's also a terrible look when you had people with assault weapons marching on different courthouses and different federal property and nothing was done. Whereas you have unarmed protesters who are being cracked down on by secret police. I mean, I think to Nick's point, it is purely political theater at this point, but it's doing so with people's lives. You know, there's accounts of people being crammed into jail cells and not being allowed to talk to lawyers, not being allowed to be released, not having their charges read against them. I mean, this is just, uh, I find it kind of ironic how many conservatives in particular are worried about big government overreach and are suspiciously silent on exactly um, what's going on. I don't, I mean, so I don't necessarily think we have, we do not have secret police in the United States per se. I think uh, the, the enforcement agency that was deployed to Portland was the border, was the CBP customs and border patrol SWAT team, essentially. Um, you know, optically it did look bad in, in my mind. Um, I don't, I think that they released, I think every single person they've detained, you know, whether or not you think that their initial detention is problematic, that's that's definitely um, something worth debating and discussing. But uh, in the libertarian movement, I think like Senator Rand Paul uh, tweeted tweeted uh, his concern over it. I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with everything he stands for, but, you know, optically, it did kind of look bad. Um, it, it's. It's sort of a, yeah, I mean, I think it, in a lot of these situations, especially civil disturbance cases, you need to really tailor your response to to the, the situation on the ground and not just deploy the cavalry 
to crush dissent. I think you really do need to have like a precise kind of uh, precisely calibrated response. That's what I would say. So wait, question. Is there, it seems like um, there's a bunch of interrelated federal agencies that are sending people. So it's like Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Marshals Service, Customs and Border Patrol. How common is that? I, I read somewhere that a lot of these people have a background in defending FEMA infrastructure during emergencies. And so also, I've also heard a lot of calls recently for the abolition of Department of Homeland Security, that it sort of doesn't, it has sort of a um, ambiguous charter or whatever, that there's, so quite, Nick, you served on a committee, or not served, you worked for a committee on, well, which committee for on on Capitol Hill? I mean, it's DOD. Uh, they so, have yeah, oversight of, of DOD. But how, how are those interrelated? Is that who is is organizing all of this? Then is it or is it just a patchwork of who is at the top? Yeah, I mean, so DHS DHS is was created after 9/11. Like Tom Ridge was the first secretary. It was created in like 2002, approximately, and they kind of just jammed a bunch of agencies under it that were from other government, like DOJ or um, Treasury. I think so like DHS now so so DHS is the umbrella organization under it is like Coast Guard uh ICE which used to be called INS before the 2002 restructuring uh CBP Customs and Border Patrol and I'm forgetting a couple TSA Transportation Security Administration all these agencies are kind of put under DHS uh Marshal Service is under Department of Justice and they're strictly there to protect courts. Uh, so they guard judges. They guard, you know, witnesses. Uh, I think, isn't there like a movie from the 80s with Clint, with um, Harrison Ford called yeah, Marshall, the U.S. Marshals? Fugitive, yeah. That's U.S. Marshals. Um, that's a the different The sequel is agency. called U.S. Marshals. But okay. Also the show Justified. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of it, too, government tends to be inefficient and you have a, a plethora of government agencies that do law enforcement for various different various different aspects of law enforcement so sometimes like in any type of crisis any type of event there's always going to be turf issues jurisdictional issues and it's probably what happened here um yeah i i did i again i i mean i don't i do not support the destruction of federal property federal courthouses or anything like that i i just think optically people need to be cognizant in government of you know having these like unmarked minivans detain people it does look very very bad and um, but so is it easy for trump to just sort of ask the homeland security director to move this sort of roving um federal guard to city to city like what what type of discretion does he have uh so they are allowed to Federal officers are allowed to conduct investigations anywhere in the country. Um, I think there's just like, seems like I, I heard someone make a point, and I thought it was an interesting yeah. one. That this could be seen as like a show of force. Trump, Trump using these situations as a show of force, leading into the election, just as an intimidation factor. That like you could have federal agents in your local town 
enforcing whatever strict voting. Uh, well, I don't actually think they'd have jurisdiction over, like, vote. I mean, I think voting... But what if Trump, ex- like, convinced a lot of people that there is some voter fraud conspiracy? Well, again, you you would need to jump through a lot of hoops, courts, and stuff to actually... Like, I just don't think that's, like, feasible right now. Um, and I think a lot of elections are done on state, state by state. Uh, county by county, uh, so that I don't I don't see that happening. Um, you know I think they were in Portland's case they were sent there to protect a federal courthouse or federal property, real estate essentially. Um, you know whether or not they did that, sure there's debate, but like they can't just be sent randomly to a location on the whim of the president. That's what I'll put it that way. I think they they constitutionally cannot do that. But he's saying that that's what he's going to do. He's already threatening to send Chicago to other places, too. Yeah. I, I mean, Trump obviously doesn't give a shit about the rules or the Constitution. But in practice, it seems like this is exactly what he's planning on doing. Well, my understanding in Chicago, there's, they're not necessarily sending CBP or like they're sending people essentially to assist the Chicago Police Department, even if Chicago initially didn't request it. Um, I mean, again, again, they, they, I think they do sort of have to get like an unwritten accord with the local officials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Portland is separate. I mean, that Portland is, is obviously the mayor and the governor and the senators have called for the federal government to just to, to, to go away. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's move to the news about. A vaccine. It seems like there have been promising developments recently. Will you explain that to us, Ben? Yeah, sure. So we've talked about this before in the past. The way that a vaccine or any drug has to be developed consists of a series of clinical trials. So first you have phase one trials, which is really just focused on safety. Phase two trials get expanded to some extent, and this is where you start to gather efficacy data as well. And then phase three is where you expand it to hundreds or potentially thousands of people. Um, And so the latest news is that Pfizer's vaccine is being moved into phase three trials shortly. Um, So that's very exciting. That kind of lines up with what I would guess uh, would be um, an approval sometime in October right now. Wow. Um, But... That said, there's still going to be huge challenges in distributing the vaccine. Um, How does their vaccine work? So that's also an interesting question. Um, So this is the first vaccine of its type. It's what's called an mRNA vaccine. Um, And so just to take a step back, the way that a virus works is that it will kind of hijack your own cells and produce its own mRNA, and then it will trick your cells into producing the proteins that that mRNA codes for. And those proteins will assemble into new viruses, go out into other cells, and the whole process starts again. So this is, for the first time, the use of a specific sequence of viral mRNA being injected, going into your cells, and being used to make kind of inert viral proteins that can't assemble into new viral particles, but can be recognized by the immune system. 
Um, so this is a totally novel novel process. It's been theorized for years that it could work, and uh, it seems like that's that's the route that it's going to go. The data the data look very promising, um, and this is kind of opposed to the previous way that you would do it, which is where you would just take a virus, chop it up into little bits, and inject that into the body and hope that the immune system recognizes a part of that chopped up bit that will then allow it to kill a whole virus. The thinking behind the mRNA vaccine is that you can really kind of target the immune response against a very specific thing um, that's a really key component of the coronavirus. So and you're in, specifically hijacking a cell and, yeah, and you're using it to make a new function. You're like, as opposed to just like throwing crap into the machine, you're actually rejiggering one of the machine's components to help you. Yeah, pretty much. It's kind of, uh, it's it's more, uh, it's definitely more targeted and it should in theory allow for a, a more effective antibody response that is significantly less random. Could there be a huge, like, um, unforeseen side consequence of that? Like you, you um, redesign the cell in an accidental way that actually then like, I don't know, makes it develop a new disease or a cancer or it makes the body shut down or something. So this would not necessarily be a huge concern of mine. There's a specific situation that I'm thinking of that it, this could happen. So normally the way things work is you have DNA, which gets translated into RNA, which then gets translated into protein. So this is kind of the way things work, DNA to RNA to protein. Uh, where we have it, potential issues is with something called reverse transcriptase. So this is a viral protein. It's only present in certain kinds of viruses, specifically what are called retroviruses. And so there they take RNA and they make new DNA. And so this is hence reverse transcriptase because it's going the other direction. And this DNA gets put into your cell's genome. And this is why certain viruses can reactivate. They can be completely dormant. And then one day, you know, you have that DNA sequence, it goes to RNA, it goes to proteins, and then you get more viruses. So if you had some kind of retroviral infection at the same time, this mRNA sequence could, in theory, get reverse transcribed and put back into your DNA. That said, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty, it's not capable of forming new viral particles on its own because it's just one specific bit of a protein of the coronavirus, so I wouldn't be overly worried. The bigger concern would be the same with any RNA sequence. If it gets inserted into a bad part of the genome and interrupts some really key gene that's preventing you from getting cancer, then that cell could become cancerous. But that's not really a concern that's specific to um, this kind of vaccine. So wait, the last thing you just said. All right, so if this mRNA coding mechanism puts DNA back into your genome that then changes it somehow, could that somehow happen in a positive way? Like, or just a crazy novel way, like your hair color would change or you would become, you know, some, it would be like the start of a superhero movie type thing. Or, or you would just, you know, improve your skin. It would find, you'd find some new, like amazing skincare product out of this. The, issue is that it would only be in one cell in particular so it can't really lead to good things you know throughout the body on a systemic level 
it can really only lead to bad things like cancer because cancer starts from a single cell and there's not really any uh, anything in our body that would uh any kind of positive effect that you so the of. only chance is to metastasize there's no such Pretty thing much. as like a positive metastasization like a cell develops in a way that's positive for the cells around it and all the other cells are like whoa i see that that's a good idea i'm gonna do that <laughs> uh not not human cells. Uh, there's certain kind of bacteria where this can happen uh, because bacteria can do something called sharing plasmids. So if one of them discovers a fun new gene or way to escape an antibiotic resistance, then they can proliferate and they can also, sh you know, share this ability with some of their neighbors. But unfortunately for our cells, we don't make plasmids. So that's amazing. That would be awesome. Someone should invent plasmids in human cells. Yeah, I think it would cause more harm than good if you're randomly integrating bits of DNA into into your genome. That's well, that's how why you, it would happen in Russia. It would happen in Russia. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, this is, like, on a slightly tangential note, this is why, like, you could, if you wanted to uh, kind of control how good your skin is or your hair color, that kind of thing, it has to be done when you're, you know, one cell or two cells. So this is, like, the whole designer baby idea. Um, that's wait, really you as a person are one cell. Yeah, exactly. So wait, how many cells is your second daughter right now? <laughs> uh, a hell of a lot, because she's about 10 days to two weeks from being born. So, on the order so of it's, billions. It's, cra it's, it's pretty, it's, it's, um, it's shocking to one's sense of reality that she is that many cells, yet not considered alive in any way, right? Yep. The conservatives have a point about that, right, Nick? <laughs> I am not an expert. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's like advocating for 38-week abortions, but maybe that's just me. I've always advocated for if someone says, this is how old I am, you should think about your conception date. And you should everyone should know when their conception date is. Seth, can I ask you a personal question? Oh, God. <laughs> When was your conception date? Were you conceived? <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. I would imagine sometime in what, March? I was born in the last day of the year. Hmm. No, I guess April then, right? I don't know. What's happening in April? When? What, what would April your conception date? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, a, that's an interesting idea. Well, that's a, lot, a lot of scenarios come spool from that. I think Ben would agree with me that Seth was conceived out of love. Like, oh, wow. You're just a yeah. child of love. This has been a great tangent. Um, so wait, uh, more serious question. <laughs> what, are, what are the Russian advantages at this point for having sort of no medical regulations and just from being able to steal all of our information at will? Uh, well, that's a good question. I'm not intimately familiar with the Russian vaccine program. Uh, I don't think anyone outside of Russia really is. My guess would be it would be really, really handy to have something that you could compare your vaccine to just to kind of know if it's shit or not and uh, whether or not it's even worth pursuing. Because clinical trials cost an inordinate amount of money, and this is the biggest reason why why therapeutics are outrageously expensive, um, both both in terms of financially and especially for a vaccine trial in terms of human capital. Not that people are dying, but you, just, you need a 
shit ton of patience to, to get something compelling. So that would kind of be my guess. And I think the other aspect is something that we touched on, the fact that this is a completely novel vaccine and there's never been one uh, specifically like this. I think that that would kind of have a lot of appeal to, to study, to see if it could be applicable in other situations. Hmm. I'm, I think it's safe to say the Russian vaccine at this point constitutes like cigarettes and vodka. I mean, I, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when was when was the last time a vaccine ever kind of came out of Russia? It's another question to ask is, I mean, I don't think they have a very advanced biomedical sector. Yeah. I mean, I guess the sort of the question is, if they did come up with something, would they even share it? Um, I think, and you know, can't they just like at this point in how technology is shared, can't they just steal innovations yeah, presumably. And then they uh, and I could think that, win like, by like by stealing innovations and speeding up their trials, because mm-hmm. we Western countries have to, it seems, prolong trials just because of human rights concerns, where the Russians just let it fly. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the other the other answer to your question, Nick, is that there vaccine development isn't really a, a hot field or anything. Uh, most of the vaccines that we have are pretty old. A lot of the current research is not necessarily focused on making vaccines for new diseases, but kind of improving on existing vaccines. You know, if we were still finding new diseases, then, you know, we as adults would be getting regular shots of new vaccines uh, all the time. And that's not really the case. Yeah, true. Do you have any juicy tidbits about Russia, Nick? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that they have a different approach to human life culturally. They've, they've had an uptick in infections, despite their media, Russia Today and Channel One in Russia, denying that that's the case. Uh, a lot of, like a couple of doctors who've spoken out against the government's response to coronavirus have been thrown out of windows or have fallen accidentally out of windows, which is seemingly a Russian way of dealing with a problem kill the messenger i mean i yeah i'm not accidental defenestration yeah i mean i think that yeah the defenestration of saint petersburg or something i mean they've 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 (laughs) developed that as a response to people crying about a an emerging problem in the country as they just silence that i think it's like five of them right now that we know about which is crazy yeah oh there i mean it's just like yeah, I mean, it, it, they're really good of, at, at public, at, their their sort of propaganda is, is excellent. I mean, I think RT has like the highest number of hits on YouTube and all this stuff, but they're just, I mean, I think like from a government perspective in Russia, they're just morally bankrupt. Um, I heard that Russia wants to, I mean, Trump is lobbying for them to be brought back into the G7 yeah, it'd be the G8. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's preposterous. Um, a stupid idea. The British, I think essentially all the other members of the G7 have expressed their displeasure with that. Um, yeah, I don't think the moment is right for any type of rapprochement with Russia. Uh, the the bounty, I, I presumably think the bounty situation is true. The Russian bounties on U.S. forces being paid to the Taliban they, the Rus- Russians have been accused of supplying small arms to the Taliban for a couple of years now. Um, yeah, they're they supply weaponry 
intelligence to Hezbollah, which is a terrorist group in Lebanon. I mean, they're, they're not like, a, Yeah. It's like a nesting doll of problems. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a... The partisan Republican pettiness inside of me looks back to the 2012 debate between Obama and Mitt Romney with fondness when Mitt Romney did say that they were the number one geopolitical foe to the United States. And I think that was kind of true at the time. And, you know, to the Trump administration's credit, they have, you know, probably in spite of forces within the White House, but they have supplied the Ukrainian military with anti-tank weaponry. Uh, They did crush a uh, Russian paramilitary force in Syria called the Wagner Group, killed like 200 of them. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot more to be done. And the notion that they are, they can be... uh, we can be friends is, is just not fe- feasible at the moment. The other uh, geopolitical thing that happened this week was they shut the Chinese consulate in Houston. Why in Houston? I know that Houston has always been considered a very like hot spot for the Asian community, or there's a lot of Asian um, residents of Houston. But um, things like that, when there's something random like that happens... It always makes me think that something is happening that that's like some sort of covert intelligence base for the Chinese government or something like that. So, yeah, I I actually agree with that move. Uh, I think that Houston is a big biomedical hub for the United States. That's where like MD Anderson, Baylor Medical, all these like big hospitals. So it's a huge hospital center. Um, And. You know, literally on camera, uh, right before the official announcement, the Chinese consulate officials were had a had a large bonfire in the courtyard of the consulate where they had a nice little kumbaya bonfire where they burned a lot of paper. I mean, that's really suspicious. The same thing happened in San Francisco. The Russians had a consulate, which was shut down. And right before the official shutdown, people noticed a lot of smoke coming from their smokestack their little chimney just because they were burning, destroying documents. Um, and these are used, the Chinese consulate in, in Houston was probably used for some espionage purposes with the biomedical field in the U.S. And the yeah. same goes for the Russian Russian stuff in Seattle and San Francisco was used to monitor, you know, kind of spy on Silicon Valley R&D stuff and, and try to steal intellectual property. That's a, I think it's kind of frightening how uh, it seems like that a lot of these smoke and mirrors international games seem to be happening sort of under the under our noses a lot of the time. Like uh, I learned recently, there's a a building somewhere in Lower Manhattan. It's like around the courts that has no windows at all, and it's just an NSA building, or it's just filled with servers. Mm. Oh yeah. To pivot to this section, I'm going to say five words, which I want... Nick, you you have to remember these five words, okay? Okay. All right, it is person, woman, man, camera, TV. Okay. All right, now, Ben, start the test. Well, some of these things are, are visual and are drawing, so we'll have to skip some of that. All right, so Nick, can you do serial subtraction of the number seven, starting from the number 100? Uh, yeah, uh, 
Okay, 193, um, 86, uh, 79, 72, 65. All right, you're good. You passed that one. Congratulations. That's as far as you have to go? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Can you repeat this after me? The cat always hid under the couch when dogs were in the room. The cat always hid under the couch when dogs were in the room. All right. Um, hang on. Let me get a timer. Name as many words as you can in one minute that begin with the letter F. Fox. Fulcrum. Feline, fedora, uh, finger, mm. <laughs> fumigation, farmer, fan, uh, France, uh, frog, uh, frumpy. Frugal. Fantastic. Fa uh, fog. Flag. You have 10 seconds. Uh, oh, God. I was about to say the F word. You could say the F word. <laughs> oh, fuck. Okay. All right. You got to 16. You need to get to 11. So, good job. Um, 16 was pretty impressive, Dick. I have to I, I take my hat off to you. Oh, God. All right. Um, <laughs> next section, abstraction. Can you name the similarity between these two words? So, for example, uh, the similarity, similarity between a banana and an orange is that they're both fruit. All right. Mm -hmm. So can you name the similarity between a train and a bicycle? Both modes of transportation. All right, nice. What is today's date? Uh, July 26th, mm -hmm. right? Oh, actually, yes. I was supposed to ask you just the date and then the month. Uh, what year is it? 2020. What day of the week is it? Sunday. Where are you right now? Seattle, Washington. And... Okay. Well, yeah, that was the next question. It's more like your house, but that's fine. Can you name the five words that Seth asked you to remember? Person, woman, man, TV camera. Yeah, right. he did it. You're he qualified to be stroke. president of the United States. Uh, is that so, it? Yeah. I hit my head against a radiator when I was five. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't have brain damage. to our non-brain damaged friend Nick Rodman for joining this week and thank you as always for listening if you like what you hear please feel free to follow us on Twitter or Instagram at whatourpoint stay safe stay well and we'll talk to you again soon bye now Fumigate was like your second F word is there something going on in your apartment? No, no, I don't know why I thought of that.